Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. This week I'm speaking to Susan Shukley, author of Material Witness. Susan is a researcher, artist, writer and educator whose work explores the way material evidence helps us understand events such as military conflicts, environmental disasters and climate change. As well as having her work exhibited internationally, she's also the director of the Centre for Research Architecture at Goldsmiths University in London and an affiliate artist researcher and board chair of the Turner Prize-nominated collective Forensic Architecture. Material Witness, which was published in February, explores how media documents instances of violence and how these documents can be deployed in legal, political and cultural settings. Some of the events examined in the book include massacres in Kosovo, Croatia, the Chernobyl and Fukushima nuclear disasters, and the use of drone strikes by the US military in Pakistan. Before we get into the book, could you give listeners a a brief overview of your research and what kind of things uh, that interest you? My own practice, which is as an artist, but then writing became very kind of important, obviously, to many artists who have who made decisions to try and think critically about the work that they do and actually uh, write about that rather than leave the job of, say, criticism to other writers, etc. So I think I'm probably part of that sort of history. Um, and at certain moments, more of my time has gone to uh, has been embedded in research and in, in writing. But I have to say, over the past, say, five years, it's pretty much been my artistic and filmmaking practice that's been at the sort of forefront of my research activities. Um, nonetheless, I find this, the space of writing does produce a different kind of temporality. It slows you down. It has, you know, there's a different way that one can also unpack a set of ideas. So um, in the book, there's quite a few cases that I've worked on that also become the subject of some of my say documentary film works but that's not but not in every case because some of the things that i'm interested in um, really lend themselves to a kind of literary sort of mode of engagement rather than producing a kind of visual language and uh, one of the challenges that i've faced is because the book does propose a kind of um, it proposes to take you know, materials, that is to say, matter seriously and makes an argument for the ways in that which we can uh, interrogate, investigate, explore, read a certain kind of contingent sort of history out of the material strata of our world. And then when I've, uh, I've written about that, but when I try and actually do that through my artistic practice, it throws up different kinds of challenges. And so, for example, you asked me about the research I'm engaged with now. I'm working on a multi-year project called Learning from Ice. And I really wanted to um, focus in particular on the circumpolar north. Um, you can probably tell from my accent, I'm actually from Canada. And I wanted to also shift some of the discussions towards the kind of northern uh, geographies, discussions in, say, anti-colonial kind of struggle, extractivism, etc. Um, but the project Learning from ICE looks at the ways in which different knowledge practices gather around a very familiar material, which is ice, frozen water, and all of the kinds of 
say questions of all of the politics that are attached to um, this thermostatic condition of frozen water. So, um, so that's my current research. So I'm still dealing with an investigation into materials, in this case, as I said, ice. And I began by looking at and working with ice core scientists in Canada and the U.S. because ice, of course, ice cores in particular are excellent archives of atmospheric kind of chemistry, and we can read back the planetary record of CO2 and methane, for example, almost a million years now. So um, that's what I'm doing now. It's still a continuation of the material witness, but engaging not so much with the kind of media artifacts that constitute the book, but more with kind of environmental materials that I actually treat as media and most climate scientists tend to approach these kinds of material um, entities also as media. We actually surprisingly share that same sort of language. So an ice core scientist will say an ice core uh, produces the highest resolution kind of data set of uh, the atmosphere of our planet or the, the atmospheric history of our planet, for example. So very quickly I came to realize that I could also meet people like Earth scientists through a shared kind of vocabulary. So that's a little bit of a snapshot of where I'm at now. And maybe the only thing I'd like to add to that. So the things I talk about in the book and then in my art practice, I said I wanted to actually take seriously the idea that materials carry history and that, that we could somehow access that history. The challenge is not simply to speak for materials. And that is, I think, one of the um, greatest difficulties I face as an artist is how do I actually produce the conditions whereby materials get to express their condition without me simply telling a story. So there's things that one can sort of express and talk about in writing and then in practice those things throw up different kinds of challenges. Mm. Yeah so maybe I could ask you to flesh out uh, this term material witness a little bit. I really like an example that you use in the introduction to the book of Vladimir Shevchenko's film stock at Chernobyl being altered by the radioactive atmosphere and it having this kind of, I don't know, a kind of like indexical relationship to something beyond the, a kind of authorship. So could you explain that term in a better detail than me? <laughs> no, absolutely. So in fact, the the concept of the material witness as I've uh, worked with it and sort of produced it, actually does come out of that moment of seeing that film. So Chronicle of Difficult Weeks was a documentary produced by Soviet filmmaker Vladimir Shevchenko. And he was given um, access to fly over the Chernobyl reactor um, two days after the explosion and meltdown took place there in April of 1986. And so um, as a filmmaker, he sets out to document the activities of the, of the people that were trying to put out the fires and also uh, contain the um, release of radioactive contaminants. When Shevchenko, so of course this is 1986, so when, and he's shooting with you know celluloid film stock. So when Shevchenko develops his film. The film comes back, his rushes come back, and they're actually partially defective or damaged. And he's sort of on the cusp, as he sort of narrates it, of sort of 
throwing all of this sort of filmic material out when he realizes, no, that the film isn't damaged. The film has actually been in some way molecularly kind of transformed by its encounter with radioactivity. So we have this kind of extraordinary conjunction where a kind of documentary, say, apparatus, in this case, the activity of filmmaking, when that film becomes kind of wholly contaminated by these radioactive isotopes, of course, they're moving through his own body as well and everything, you know, the camera, the housing of the camera. So Shevchenko eventually does die as a consequence. But the film captures an actual kind of trace of the real. It's not a document of the events of Chernobyl. It is the thing itself, you know. So there's no longer this kind of photographic index that points to reality external to the image. The event is part of the image. It's inside the media. And it became this kind of crucial moment in my thinking. And I started to look at um, all other kinds of materials in which a certain kind of registration of an external event was somehow captured by the materials. But I think it's important at this moment to, to say that that is, in fact, always the case. So our hand, and we're very aware of this right now under the conditions of COVID-19, right? Everything that we touch carries a potentially lethal kind of trace, if you will, or comes into contact with a lethal trace, those traces and try and produce a timeline for events. But nonetheless, I don't think that's sufficient because as a concept to say that materials can witness events, what I started to do was also look into the ways in which certain kinds of materials then became objects of kind of public dispute or contestation. Oftentimes, in my case, I started to follow those materials into courtrooms. In a juridical context, you can really start to see which materials matter, which forms of testimony matter, who's considered significant, worthy of paying attention to, who is dismissed, the expert versus the layperson, etc., etc. We really see the kind of operations of the logic of who decides as to the particular kind of significance of any kind of evidential kind of artifact. So ultimately, in crafting the concept of the material witness, I argued that it's both the um, evidence of external events, which would be the example of, of the Shevchenko film, but it's also pointing to the event of evidence. So the ways in which certain situations come to come to bestow specific significance on th things and say this is worthy of attention um, and that was a kind of crucial move that I had to make in order to as I say in order to argue for the kind of operative nature of the concept of the material witness that it's really this double entity evidence of events but also pointing to the event of evidence right right that kind of leads me on to the next thing i wanted to ask you your research kind of operates in a couple of different spaces sort of legal cultural um, and looking at the case some of the case studies in the book chernobyl uh, fukushima watergate scandal touch on the troubles in ireland the u.s use of drone strikes the vietnam war and massacres in kosovo and croatia and they're all sort of hugely traumatic and violent incidents of human behavior but there are also forms of violence that have structure and are networked and they're institutionalized. And I was wondering what your way of working offers in terms of how we understand agency and responsibility when they become complex within these other structures. Mm -hmm. 
So several of the cases you've mentioned, some of them I've worked on as, as actually investigative cases. Others, as I said, might be the subject of just my writing or possibly also the subject of kind of documentary, kind of filmmaking, etc. So at the core of my work has been a sustained investigation into conditions of violence, but also trying to at the same time think through what might be kind of mechanisms of accountability that could attend to those kinds, those different sort of forms of violence from, in some cases, I'm not always talking about the kind of dramatic or or cataclysmic violence of a kind of nuclear kind of meltdown, but it could be a certain kind of violence that, that's not really registering in, in and isn't very kind of perceptible. So, for example, some of the work that and the writing that I do around environmental contaminants, I'm really trying to also um, explore certain kinds of harms that aren't operating and or don't present themselves as visible kind of agents that we can sort of see. I mean, clearly COVID-19 is exactly that. It's a kind of invisible threat that's omnipresent. But of course, many kind of toxins, pollutants, etc., many environmental contaminants or atmospheric pollutants, that's exactly the kind of condition. It's not something we can necessarily see. It's not like a military conflict or, you know, a bombing of a city and we see the kind of immediate aftermath and sort of destruction. So part of the ch- part of the project of the book is to really start to think through different, the more diffused and networked kind of conditions that then they also then also have to in some way expand the potential field of accountability. I mean, that's one of the things that the book is really trying to make an argument for. How is it that we actually produce a set of relations that can somehow intend to these injustices that is kind of equal in scope to the very ways in which these kinds of harms are actually extensive and unfold through time and space. And and so that's really um, where I think my engagement with certain environmental um, crises has been uh, really kind of productive for me in the book. But also I would say looking at, a, there's three chapters that deal very specifically with sound. And I think sound also produces that same set of um, conditions because the ways in which sound waves propagate is often as in a highly kind of diffuse sort of manner, right? So sound also has a different a different mode of sort of registering, like even at, um, maybe to put it more kind of simply, when I was doing the work with forensic architecture on the um, UN um, drone strike investigation, one of the things that was um, really um, came to my attention was the kind of repeated comments that witnesses were making about the impact of sound. So that is to say, engine and propeller noise of these armed combat dro- drones that were surveilling, surveying the skies of Af- Afghanistan and Pakistan, and that this, how this kind of omnipresent sound, which is 150 hertz, was so kind of detrimental to the health and well-being of communities. It wasn't always lethal. There wasn't always a drone strike but the surveillance apparatus was operating at certainly at the height of the global war on terror, you know, sort of 24 seven in, in, in many parts of, of, of the world and in particular this kind of region. And so 
you have this very kind of diffused, diffused network of harm that's not necessarily deadly, but it's producing a whole set of collateral kind of effects. And so all of the, yet all of the sort of legal argumentation, all the political argumentation about drone strikes was, it's a, it's a targeted kind of uh, munition that produces, that really minimizes civilian casualties because it's not like if you drop something like a big cluster bomb, you are going to have much more kind of, much more impactful kind of like detonation. So yes, a drone strike might be more precise and therefore minimize civilian casualties, but that doesn't take into account all of its collateral effects. And so I was always trying to look at the ways in which certain kinds of, uh, in the case, in this case, it was a certain kind of technology that was understood in one way, but complete, there was absolutely no recognition of a whole other set of factors that were attached to that, that were also producing this, this much more distributed sort of field of harm. And therefore then I was asking, but how do we actually produce any sort of like accountability? What's the kind of legal framework that could attend to this kind of harm? that is not part of the kind of logic of the system. It's a byproduct of that, if you will. So much of the book is always trying to explore, I'd say, not the things in the foreground, but the things in the background, the things on the margin. You know, it's, it, it, it has that kind of, it's always sort of looking askance, if you will, or trying to tease out the sort of small little bits of sort of like extraneous information that usually might go completely unnoticed. And so, often trying to kind of invert the sort of like what is the kind of um what is the uh, always the kind of the sort of dominant narratives that organize a, a field of intelligibility mm. and does that come in part from a, a kind of an attitude from an artistic or cultural practice as opposed to a traditional legal one i mean possibly i mean al weitzman who's obviously uh an important uh, friend and colleague and, and the, the director of the forensic architecture kind of agency, he's often said that my, or he said rather, that my writing has the sort of sensibility of an artist that it has a highly, there is a kind of maybe a highly kind of imagistic, if you will, dimension to the, the writing that the, you know, I craft my sentences and I, I have to read them out loud so that they actually have a certain sonic kind of register, like they... I don't like sentences when I'm reading that if I spoke them out loud would be like somehow, fall, you know, one would be stumbling all over them. Um, so there is a kind of, there's an artistic sensibility in my writing, but I think in terms of your question, my entire practice I think has really been constituted by looking at the, at the fragment, at the kind of molecular, at this kind of, at these very kind of modest, what I call modest sort of artifacts my interest, I guess, has always in some way been guided by an interest in the sort of micro, in particles, in fragments, in, in, in sort of modest materials or entities. And, and I guess in that sense, you know, someone like Walter Benjamin is, is an important figure to me in terms of his provocations about trying to read the sort of entire history of modernity out of the kind of fragments and kind of runes and the dust, if you will, of the arcades, etc. So how do you find a whole world in a sort of molecule or something like that, right? I mean, I've always been extremely compelled by that particular scale and then trying to sort of then construct 
a narrative where that tiny particle or a moment is attached to a much larger kind of more complex kind of reality. I don't think I ever begin with the kind of like the big picture. I usually always start with something quite diminutive in scale and then try and sort of sort of scaffold my way out of that in or you know in some sort of fashion. So I don't think it comes out of any particular disciplinary kind of attachment. It's just my own sort of interest in, in a certain uh, scale uh, that has always yeah. been, it's more of an organizing principle, I guess, right? Yeah. I also wanted to ask you about how you think about the relationship between practice and theory in research. It should be an easy question for me to answer insofar as the, um, I work in the Center for Research Architecture and I take to heart the ways that we've established that center and that mode of kind of working, which is to say that, first of all, I would disagree with that theory practice kind of uh, divide that always gets presented like that. And and, uh, this is the way I work with the students, and this is hopefully the way that I construct my own set of operations is like, our practical engagements generate certain kinds of insights. It's practical engagements that are constitutive of our theoretical insights. It's not that we have a practice and then we're, that practice then tries to find some sort of theoretical framework that can account for the practice. It's no, out of the practice, out of practical engagements, a set of insights emerge and those insights then start to be suggestive of certain kinds of ways of thinking and they raise the, they start to raise kind of questions and I think so both in my own work but also I think most importantly in the work that we do in the center what we've really tried to really instill in our working pedagogically with the students is we're not going we don't ask we don't ask our students to come up with a research question that then they that guides the trajectory of their explorations or that they set out to somehow prove or find evidence for or even uh, manufacture evidence for. No, it's to say that um, a certain condition that you're interested in, a certain contemporary condition, once you start to investigate or explore that condition, and you have to make a lot of decisions about how you're going to enter into that, you know, at what scale, from what vantage point, etc etc but nonetheless in in starting to um, investigate that condition a set of questions emerge those questions might be a driving force in in the sort of analytical work that one does but you arrive at the question you don't start with that question it's the encounter with a condition and working through that that is, can be very generative and it generates certain questions that then need to be asked. And I, I think that's really the ways in which um, I've tried to approach my own kind of practice as, as this really kind of, you know, like co-constitutive, if you will. Um, and strangely enough, I have to say, by the time I finished the Material Witness book, I don't think there are very many theoretical references in that book at all. There's a lot of references to reports and thing and reference materials, but the sort of theoretical engagement has somehow, I think, submerged itself within the project. You know, there's very few citations. There's some citations to Deleuze and a couple to Derrida. Of course, Isabel Stengers is there. She's a key philosopher for me, the Belgian 
uh, philosopher mm. of science and feminist Isabel Stengers, but nonetheless, it, the book is itself not an engagement with sort of with with sort of theoretical mm. concerns. It, my my sort of uh, reading of these theorists, you know, uh, in an ideal scenario, you say becomes part of your DNA, and it's it, mm. the people with which you you think. You know, I'm no longer sort of. Uh, I'm not writing about them per se. I'm hopefully thinking with them. That might be a, a great place to leave it if that's, that's okay with you. Yeah, no, that's perfect. I actually have a tutorial in nine minutes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, perfect. Well, thanks, thanks so much for letting me ask you a couple of questions. I, I, I really appreciated having some of your time. <laughs>